0: folks welcome to episode 21 of the world's nation podcast in our third and final part of talking the day the devil's dropped in with historian neil barber we'll be discussing jeff howard's experiences with the first and seventh middlesex battalion the commando's important role and the experiences of stan scott with number three commando as well as learning about neil's current work looking at the blowing of the five bridges across the river dives and yvette just a quick note though, these episodes were not recorded in a studio, but inside an original C-47 Dakota, now used as a gate guard at Colchester, so apologies in advance for some of the background noise you'll hear during this episode. So Neil, during your research uh, into the six Airborne Division, obviously you've touched on the commandos. With that as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book on that and their role, I guess, in the 6th Airborne Division sector as well? Okay, yeah, I mean, the reason um,
1: I kind of got involved in the, with the commandos in that way was, as I mentioned early, earlier, trying to find any information you can that can add to the story and the overall picture of the area, corrobor- corroboration, that kind of thing. And I went to one of the commando ceremonies in Amphreville, where it was quite, you know, they'd have about 50 there back then, back in the 90s, and I just went up to a commando and asked, you know, this is what I'm trying to do, can you tell me a bit more about it, and he said, oh, you don't want to talk to me, you want to talk to Stan Scott. Anyway, this big, imposing character came bounding across, <laughs> um, very forceful person, um, commando written all over it. Fortunately, he lived at Leytonstone, which wasn't too far from me, and I went and interviewed him when I got back, and he had one of the most extraordinary memories I've ever come across, possibly because the Army had been his life. He absolutely loved the Army, and even there, in his what was it, mid-70s, he was still training cadets, and not just in the classroom, out in the weeds teaching field craft. Extraordinary man. And he kept on talking and talking, and he came up with so much information um, that in the end you just thought, I've got to write about this man. He was was incredible. So that's how fighting with the commandos came across, or came about. The reason why I wanted to focus on the commandos, of course, was, um, this was at the time of writing the Devils dropped in, Um, which was 9th Battalion. After they came out of the battery, went into Amphraville, found that they'd it was, quite, it was quite strongly held, so they took up position in the chateau there. And they had to wait there and do what they could to hang on until they knew the commandos would be coming across at a certain time. Uh, and that's what, exactly what happened. About two, two o'clock in the afternoon, they saw some movement at the Eckhard crossroads at the bottom of the hill. Uh, went down, found out that the commandos were arriving. So they briefed them on what they knew about the defences, where the strong points were in the village. And three troop, three commando, of which Scotty belonged, ended up attacking up the Eckhard Road and into the village, um, eventually clearing the village. And they were certainly the first ones there you'll you read in other books about six commando getting there. But a chap called Jimmy Sinnott, who I also interviewed, he was sent up the road towards Bernard Saunier's farm and met Bernard and asked him where the German positions were, if there were any still about. Uh, and there were no commandos at that end of Amperville when Jimmy Sinnott got there. Uh, so 6th Commando came up later. I will qualify that, though, in that 3 Troop 6th Commando had got there before anyone else, although they hadn't actually gone into Amperville. Captain Alan Pyman led 3 Troop of 6th Commando to Breville Crossroads. It was their job to uh, get there. Uh, in fact, Pyman had been the first man to get to well, the first officer gets to Pegasus Bridge and well, the link-up with the 7th Battalion in, in Beneville. And it was actually he who apologised for being two minutes late. It wasn't, it wasn't Lord Lovett at all. And you can read all this in the war diary. It's all there in black and white. Um, unfortunately, Pyman was killed. They, was, they ended up being surrounded in Breville, where it was quite strongly held. And Pyman was killed by a sniper that afternoon. They eventually withdrew. Uh, and 6 Commando took up position in the saunier farm around the area. Um, 3 Commando was diverted, or m- most of it, into Ronville because General Galbin worried about an attack that had been going on in, in that area. So they were kept in Ronville for the night of D-Day. Um, Scottish Troop 3, Troop 3 Commando were at the other end of Anfraville um, and 4 Commando and 45 went further along the road and took up position in, how going in that area and think what well, Merville as well at that, George Merville? It was the task of Lovett's 1st Special Service Brigade to take up that part of the Breville Ridge as part of the airborne perimeter, which is what they did. They came under heavy attack, particularly in those first, that first week, some very heavy attacks that they uh, repelled. Um, Scotty was part of that. Once that week was up, well, during that week and shortly after, they were there for quite a while. Their whole philosophy, as was the powers, was never to sit tight. They would always go out, aggressive patrolling. They called it, not let the Germans settle. Always have the initiative. So it was always a very lively area. But they did their job perfectly. Really, their task—they were given given ta- the impossible task. Really, three commandos was given a task, if possible, of getting to Caborg. And you can't ever see that in Caborg's a long way inland. I mean, forty-five. Royal Marine Commando went into Merville and met very, very heavy opposition there. So they we were never going to get any further than Merville. Because 45 had, had to withdraw and ended up being um, back with Halger in the Hauga area. Yeah, so Scotty had quite an exciting time out there, to put it mildly. Obviously he went on fighting throughout the war, throughout um, the Ardennes, into Germany. Um, and he also joined the military police. Not to, <laughs> he didn't want to, but he was putting the military police. Um, so it's quite interesting listening to his stories of uh, breaking up the fighting in Brussels pubs after the war and things like this. Uh, and also, he was in charge of some of the German prisoners. But um, he was
0: Stan was a real phenomenon, and uh, yeah, sadly missed. And your book, Fighting with the Commandos, focused on his story and three commandos.
1: Yeah, three troop in particular. Yeah, it's very specific about Stan from his childhood. I mean, to look at him, you'd think, I mean, he was a big fella, and he lost an eye after the war in an accident where he pushed, there was a cable that broke, and he knew he saw it coming, and pushed his bloke out of the way, and he, he ended up losing an eye. You'd think, oh, some people might think anyway, but he was a very brusque man, He, you know, very determined, he, um, but he was very highly intelligent, very analytical, and um, particularly when it came to soldiering, what he didn't know about soldiering wasn't worth knowing. Uh, special
0: man, special man. And what about your uncle? You obviously touched on his story as uh, an influence yeah. on why you got into doing what you do. Um, what about the first seven mi- sorry, first and seventh Middlesex story, and his in particular, the book you've written on that?
1: Yeah, he, he um, as a kid, I mean, Jeff, Jeff Hayward he has always been a funny man, very dry. And as a kid, he'd always tell us these war stories, and always they'd be funny. But when you, you know, obviously having been out with him to Normandy innumerable occasions, and you know now know what's what. You know, some of them are not quite as funny as he. As he made out, I and mean, there's one in particular. I mean, I, I'll just say he thought he was at Dunkirk, he, he was a territorial Vickers machine gunner. Got out at Dunkirk, went out to North Africa, was at El Alamein, wounded in Sicily, then did D Day, right the way through the Normandy, campaign, into Holland, and then earned the MM in the Reichsfold in '45.
0: Remarkable career.
1: Yes, he was lucky. He was he was shot a few times. Um, on the retreat from Dunkirk, he was shot by his mate in the shoulder. In Sicily, he was shot up the backside as he was jumping over a German trench, uh, a pistol. Uh, which is quite, he always again tells that as a funny story, but I'm sure he wasn't laughing at the time. And then Normandy, one story in Normandy, always fascinated us which he always told us been very funny. Um, and this was near Eskerville. They'd set up their um, three teams of machine gunner, three Vickers, quite a few yards apart, and they were protecting some anti-tank guns. In front they had um, a sort of short distance that was clear, a little bit of sort of chicken wire, then a field and there was a little bit of clearance in that field, say so 10 yards, and then it was all corn. At the end of that corn, there was a road. <clears throat> and in this, during this morning, they heard German vehicles coming down the road. Anyway, they come, stopped on this road, and the Germans started getting out of the half tracks and coming through the fields. So, of course, all the fighting kicked off and firing. And the field caught fire, there was smoke going on. All this sort of thing. But all of a Jeff saw this figure run by him, and he thought, "Oh my goodness, the Germans have got through us." And uh, he knew, being a Vickers machine gunner, that it was pointless running because if they caught him, it, it, um, so he carried on. And then he realised it was actually the crew of the anti-tank gun running away. Um, but he said they're off. They're off. So their NCO got them back. But anyway, they the Germans got. Very, very close. They reached this clear area, and he said the only thing that stopped them really overrunning them was this little bit of barbed wire separated the fields. Anyway, um, they were with um, Fifth Black Watch, if I remember rightly, and or supporting the Fifth Black Watch. And this Jock officer came up to him and said, "Oh, can you one of your men go out there and get ID off of the the?" Um, German, Germans laying out there, and he'd never done it before. He thought, OK, I'll, I'll go and get some souvenirs. And he said to his mate, cover me. He? he said, yeah, you give me half of what you find. And I'll... Anyway, Jeff went out there, and the first one he went to, it was a big German lying face down with his arms like that, and just away from his hand was a Luger. He thought, oh, right, that's, I'll have that went down to pick the Luger up, and this German jumped up, grabbed an entrenching tool, and was going to swing it, and Jeff couldn't do anything else but grab hold of him. He said, so we were dancing around in no man's land, and all these jocks saying, jump, jump. He said uh, said it could only have been, it felt like a long time, but it, um, it could only have been a few seconds. But he said I managed to just push myself off him and they, they shot this German. Um, and he always put that as a funny story. But he came back and he said this jo- this jock officer was doubled up laughing. <laughs> and uh, uh, he said it was so funny seeing you um, dancing round in no man's land with a German. But, and he, so he, obviously it, it's funny put that way. but. When you start talking to him about the little details, you know, he could feel his breath on his on his cheek and things like that. That was a close run thing for me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so uh, that was my uncle. It's always been that way, very dry. But um, I'm very lucky. So, so he, he in in the Reichsfold Fold, they were on a patrol. of sent into a wood. And they were in a, in a, a glade and um, this firing started and his best mate who had served right through the war with Frank Dolling, uh, who was with him, they went through this, all these Fern and Bracken to try and find out where this firing had come from and a sniper shot Dolling right through the head. He was killed instantly but Jeff was a bit away from him so he didn't know. He got, he got to Frank, saw that he was dead. And then went back, got some more people and tried to find out where this position was. He ended up I think, with a bullet going through his sleeve under his armpit. So he was very he's been very lucky. Very lucky but. and he got his, his MM award later on. The CO wanted to see him and said, Oh my goodness, what have I done now? And it turned out it was this award and uh, he was um presented it with uh or the ribbon with um by General Montgomery, so that was
2: quite nice. And so, uh, Jeff's story uh, is um, uh, is the subject of uh, one of your books, isn't it? You've got a book about, about Jeff.
1: Yes, it's called, the publishers called it um, Fighting Hitler from Dunkirk to D Day. It goes a bit further than that, into, right up to the end of the war. And uh, yeah, it covers his, well, from his childhood, his upbringing, um, right through to joining up, which is very, he joined up. In the, in the territorials in North London with the first, 7th Middlesex, and went off to war in furniture, lorries, this kind of thing. It was really Heath Robinson at that time. But yeah, he had to have quite a war. Quite a war.
2: And he's uh, he's very popular out in um, Normandy and, and Holland and everywhere he goes, isn't he? Yeah,
1: well, he's popular still got that dry sense of humour. <laughs> uh, yeah, out in Holland at the moment, and um, it'll be a hundred. Fingers crossed. At the end of July that's amazing so that'll be wonderful yeah I mean he's physically he's mm. not too bad uh, but mentally he's sharp as a button mm.
2: Mm.
1: even had his ears cleared the other day you can actually hear us now
2: <laughs> <laughs> so we're in a um, Dakota at the moment the other c-47 um, which obviously was one of the planes uh, used um, in the, uh, the invasion of Normandy um, to drop parachutists in. What can you tell us about uh, about the plane? Uh, well, usually there was a stick of around
1: 18 men. Um, it, it, would have been very, it looks very roomy here, but with those, the men with all their kit, leg bags, everything, it would have been a very cramped environment. This was a, a real step forward for the paras. Most A lot of them had never jumped from a Dakota actually before. Um, because they'd been loose, they trained in Whitneys, where they actually jumped through a little hole in the floor, which was very risky, banging your face on the other side of it. The other battalions used, uh, some of the other battalions used Stirlings, which was a big sort of bath shaped hole in the, in the floor. Um, and the people like the Pathfinders went across in Albemarles, which were very, very cramped. You could only get 10 men in them. That, again, that was another. Not quite as big bar shape but had two flaps that opened up and was very difficult to get out of. They'd to end up developing a, a way of jumping like a bunny hop to get them out of the, the aircraft. They had all sorts of problems. They had a, had a, a turret on as well which caused them problems with things catching on this kind of thing. In fact it happened to one of the boats who, who got caught. There was a door between got like there, between there and the cockpit and it went to jump or move and it got caught on the back door. Of course when he jumped he was a long way from the rest of them in that few seconds and of course you're a long way from, from the rest of the stick.
2: So practically what, what, how was it an improvement for the parachutist jumping from uh, a Dakota say compared to like an Albemarle?
1: Certainly this, I mean it do not look luxurious but they had a seat for a start off. they didn't have to sit on the floor. Literally in the Albumal you got into it through the hole in the floor and that was difficult in itself. You know when they were all loaded up with the kit bags and everything, and particularly with the album hole, you had to load very carefully because you bring the tail wheel off the floor, this kind of thing. I think that was a big part of it actually, the actual way you got into the aircraft. And with this, getting on, although they still had difficulty because they were so overloaded, they would have got up those stairs and had to be pushed in still to, to get here. But, you know, once you're on board you can, you gradually sort yourself out as you go across and you know, make your own space, that kind of thing. So
2: this was almost luxury. And it was easier to jump from as well, quicker to jump yeah, from. Yeah, I
1: think it was a pleasure more of a pleasure for them to jump from from this. You'd have the leg bag there, they'd kick that out, and then just go straight out. Under the obviously under the tail
2: plane. It was a far more suitable plane for Paris to jump drop from. So Neil, tell us some. Um, tell us what you're working on at the moment. What are you researching? Well I've been working on on and off interruptions
1: of course for maybe a couple of years on book about the five bridges across the River Deve. As I mentioned earlier I had no other primary tasks to prevent the German armour from going straight into the 6th Airborne Division in effect. Again it's been quite a bit written about it but I interviewed a number of people who've been involved in different bits and uh, it's just fascinating again to actually get beneath the surface and put yourself in air position uh, and appreciate really what they did because it's always been a bit of a bugbear of mine that you can read various things, but you don't get that appreciation of distance because they say things like, "Oh, why did the British not capture Con on D-Day? It's only five miles inland." Well, if you drive from Salt Beach to Con, that is a long way. That is a long way, and when you think of the defence, I mean, Salt Beach was most heavily linked, so at the Lago, like Omaha Salt Beach was the most heavily defended beach along the entire front. You know, inland as well, it was in depth, and you can't argue that because why? Because obviously Colm was the most important city, so it would be. So any my thing with distance and that, with Varroville and the difference between Varroville and Lemon, you think that the people, the Canadians, having to get back from Varroville to the crossroads. And you can drive that in five minutes, but you try walking that distance, mm-hmm. and not knowing what is round the corner, this kind of thing. Well, I found this with the, uh, with the 8th Battalion and the three Power Squadron Engineers. Take for instance, um, Tim Rosevear's group. They hadn't got all their kit, they'd been spread or put on the wrong DZ as well. But they got a group together and they got some of their uh, these trolleys to put the ammunition on. Um, and explosive and they followed the route from Ronville through Herreville up to the top of the road, the uh, Troarn Road, where they got to, there was a notorious place that ended up being called the Triangle. They got there, that's where they kind of split up. But when you go, you follow that route through Ellaville, Esquivel and then there's a long slope. To so pull those trolleys all that way, full of all this Explosive weight—it's extraordinary—and they weren't even at the bridge then. You know that just to get it there, uh, and that was where Tim Rosveer. He—they'd been a jeep accompanying this medical jeep. He, he commandeered this jeep, which is quite amusing when you read in all the books about. They just commandeered it, but when you read the medical side of it, it was the case of they were told, "Get your shit off of there and f off." <laughs> Um, which is a story in itself because that medical man can't remember, his main escaped me at the moment but he was a member of 224 Field Ambulance on his own initiative, typical para he got some German prisoners, they'd taken in some bikes and they'd hooked on all the plasma on the bikes and carried it and got all that plasma to what turned out to be the MDS at the minimum and that was all they had for two days really so his action Really, yeah, saved so many lives. They had their tasks to do, and that's... So, yeah, so, obviously, Rosary shot off down the road with this gentleman trailer full of explosive and men, and again, got to on uh, just before they'd hit a, a barbed wire fence across the road. And it's, it's little things up that, that put you in their position that are fascinating. Bill Irving, one of the engineers, who went on to uh, the the Chateau, he had had a pair of wire cutters, and he was under the jeep, cutting the wire away from the axle, and this sort of thing. <laughs> and he said, he was getting all this abuse. Come on, hurry up, it took him 20 minutes. You can imagine the abuse he was getting, obviously in the dark. But Rosevear was, sh- was shining his torch on him, and he said, I didn't quite appreciate this. from a sniper point of view, you know. Yeah. But, um, so little things like that, and then they got in. Obviously, got into a into There was a little incident where they'd sent Bill Irving forward, actually, with a, an officer. And it's all that's all been a bit hazy because then a German came along and been along on a bike, and uh, they ended up shooting shooting this boat. Of gave the alarm away, but it was the officer who actually shot him. So called Roger there, road through Troon and all the Germans in all the windows and the high street were firing and this kind of thing. And again very fortunate because a, a German ran out into the well, he was mate ran into the middle of the road with an MG42 and we're going to open up so he just went straight for them and they got out of the way and then ran back out afterwards to set up again and just started firing as the road go straight down a hill and this just passed over their heads, so they were very lucky. Uh, unfortunately one of the blokes was thrown off uh, the gunner, Sapper Peachin, but they got to the bridge uh, and successfully blew a, a gap in it. But there's other things to it as well, there's not mentioned that much... No one really remembers that uh, another group, 8th Battalion, went through and blew, made the, the gap wider later on in the day. There was also another attack which I'm looking into, which I, which didn't turn out well, um, and that's, so that's the Troon bridge. Bure, again, is, I find fascinating because, again, little things, there was a glider which landed right by the railway bridge, and I'm trying to put more and more to that because one of the pilots was in absolute agony with two really badly broken legs. Eventually they got a jeep, which I'm trying to track where it, at its route where it, where it had been, came and got him away, and obviously they blew the railway bridge but before blowing the little sort of, what wasn't mainly a footbridge really um, this French farmer asked if he could move all his cattle across it's it's always nice to let the British let him get all his cattle across (laughs) to this side before blowing the bridge bomb again is very very interesting um, difficult in piecing together because there's so many conflicting accounts on the Canadian side but certainly more, I mean some very strange behaviour from some of the Canadian officers as well. Um, from their own words, you know. But, um, again, another brilliant action and uh, managed to add bits to that from three per hour squadron engineers, Bob Sullivan, whose job was to blow a crater at one end to make it longer. And you can still see all the, the shrapnel marks in the side because they repaired that bridge. It's got all plates in, in the centre. The only one really that's causing a problem is the one at Barreville that went over the d uh, There's very few accounts of what actually happened. Uh, I think there was a bit of a, a mess up there. I think some Canadians were on the wrong side of the bridge when it went up. But oh, these things happen. You know, it's warfare, isn't it? But, uh, what happened to Sapapichi, do you know? He got captured. And uh, very, very sadly, he, had, he wanted nothing more to do with He never went to any reunion dinners. Or he was very bitter about it. And I was. Real, I thought I might be getting close to something with a bit of luck, but in the Engineers Museum not so long ago, there was a, a letter from I can't remember his name, one of his colleagues. He said, I know his story, but I'm hoping I'll get him to tell it. I'm still hoping. And then I thought, right. Oh, Am I going to get somewhere in the next letter? No, he's not. He's not willing to put it to paper. And, he didn't, and this fella didn't want to. Uh, you know, he wasn't going to do it. Which is a real shame because it's, it's it's obviously that information's gone with them both now. So that's that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. Um, and also link it in as I say. I'm going to link it in with the third parabrigade headquarters and the setting up of the NDS. Little things like that. I've, I mean, in touch with a signaler who was one of the first signalers there. So it's not, um, it's not anyone specific because it's, it's kind of thread. Like on, on DZ, for instance, DZK, there's always, it's always been hated to me when it comes to the pathfinders. When you read the records it says there was one Eureka set up there. And, and the one that Bob Stoodley, because they just stick with Bob Stoodley was in. And he, in fact he said he was dropped wide and that's all you'll hear about. But he landed spot on the DZ and he set up his Eureka Beacon. And he knows it was working because you know, he, he heard the return beat. But he ended up getting captured uh, later in the morning because his NCOs decided they should stay where they were when he wanted to get out. But one of their um, sticks obviously landed on DZN as well, which set up their Eureka there, signaling K. So there's, there's all sorts of little things that trying to... Add bits too. I mean, Paddy O'Sullivan, um, who's in that famous film, The Pathfinders, you can see him blacking up, he was actually Bob Stoodley's bodyguard, supposed looking at, you know, protecting the Eureka. Um, and they never met on the dropping zone. And there's always been talk about they were shots, he met a German and was shot simultaneously, they shot one another. And that story does seem to have been true, but it seems that it wasn't directly on landing because there's an account by another one of the pathfinders who saw him coming out in the dark, and they met one another and had a bit of a disagreement as to actually where to set the Eureka up because it seemed to be this chap wasn't very happy that it was too exposed. So um, Sullivan actually headed off towards uh, Tuffreville, and that's where near Tuffreville was where he was found, this German. So. There is truth to that, it sounds like, that he was killed almost simultaneously with the German, but not after landing. So that's really, hopefully over the next year, I'll, I'll be happy with it. And I've exhausted all the avenues that I know of. How
2: did Bill Irving get
1: the M.M. at the chateau? He, he was in part of Brigadier Hill's party that went through on the 12th, you know, and cleared the wood.
2: Yeah.
1: And Bill Irving had a pier, and the tank that came out behind the field behind the chateau um, Bill fired at it Deterred it
0: Special thanks to all those That helped with these episodes Neil, Robin, John and Sam The Colchester Barracks And of course you for listening We really do appreciate your support So thank you very much Coming up next on the World Water Nation podcast We're talking with Professor Frederick Taylor a special multi-part episode marking the 79th anniversary of the infamous raid on Coventry in November 1940 by the Luftwaffe during the height of the Blitz.